As people, we look to fill our lives with something, anything that will fulfill us. To quote a famous commercial, it's what we do. And since the garden, we have needed somehow to fill the void that is left in our hearts and our souls because we don't have a relationship with God. We're purposeless, hopeless. So we work voraciously, hoping to make a name for ourselves, or we pursue money, thinking that the more money we have, the happier we will be. We pursue love in various relationships, thinking that that man or that woman will fulfill us, fulfill that void in our hearts. And sometimes these pursuits fill us, at least temporarily. But then we're left, we're left empty. And so we're either left to, to grit our teeth and, and keep pursuing what doesn't actually fulfill us in someone else or something else, somewhere else, or we're just left hopeless. But in enters Jesus. One of the most compelling things about Jesus is that when people meet him, the void that is in their heart is filled. Meeting Jesus changes people. One of the best examples of that in Scripture is the Apostle Paul. This this dude was trying to fulfill himself, trying to fill that empty void with religion. And he pursued religion zealously, so much so that he hated Christ and he hated Christians. But it was on that road to Damascus that Jesus met him and his life was radically changed. He ends up living his life for Christ to make disciples, Christians, followers of Jesus. He writes, over half of the New Testament, his life was radically transformed because of Jesus. I, I can think of um, my, one of my favorite high school teachers, her, her testimony. Her, her dad was what you would call a, a rebel rouser. Back in the 1940s, before tattoos were cool, he had a sleeve of tattoos on either arm. He was a drunk. He smoked. He fought. He ran from the police. And then one day he met Jesus. And his life was radically transformed. So much so that he ended up becoming a pastor. He replaced his passion for the world with a passion for Christ that was unquenchable. And he had a daughter who ended up teaching me in high school. And she's one of the most godly women I've ever known. Maybe your testimony's like that, or maybe you've heard a testimony similar to that. I wouldn't be surprised. Jesus has been meeting people for over 2,000 years and radically transforming their lives. You see, we need that radical transformation in our life because we, we buy into the lie of the world. We know that there's a void in our hearts without Christ. We know that there's an emptiness, there's a guilt, there's a shame, there's a loneliness. 
But we buy into the words of the world, you're enough. You're enough. Even some Christians tweet out, put it on Facebook, you are enough. But Jesus came down to this earth to tell us that you're not enough, but he's enough. And he's the one who can fill that void in your heart. That's what he does. Jesus is in the business of taking people who look to fill a God-sized hole with things that are minuscule, molecular, compared to the size of the hole that needs filled. And Jesus fills them. In fact, that's our big idea as we look at Jesus and the woman at the well part two today. Our big idea is this, that Jesus changes you by filling your void and giving you a purpose in life. Jesus, I could insert, radically changes you by filling the void in your heart, in your soul, and giving you a purpose in this life. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, let's look at John chapter 4. And even though primarily we're going to be covering 27 through 42 today, I'm going to begin in verse 26, because last week Jesus dropped a bomb on the lady, saying that he was the Messiah. John chapter 4, starting in verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That is the word of God. Now, where are we in this story? Well, so last week, Jesus was baptizing more people than John, John the Baptist. And the, the head honchos in Jerusalem, they found out. And they, they wanted to inquire about who Jesus was. They wanted to know, is this the Messiah? After all, that's how John starts off his book, with the head honchos from Jerusalem sending out spies, inquisitors, asking if John the Baptist is the Messiah. 
And John clearly says no. But Jesus' time to declare that he is the Messiah to his own people has not come yet. Now, we, we don't get that, especially in light of this story. Jesus clearly tells the woman that he is the Messiah. But in Jesus' day, the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah who would sit on the throne of David, overthrow the Romans, and, and have a physical earthly kingdom. But Jesus came to do more than that. So, verse 4 of chapter 4 says, He had to pass through Samaria. Now, physically speaking, he did not have to pass through Samaria. Physically speaking, a normal Jew would actually avoid Samaria at all costs. But Jesus, Jesus has a providential meeting with this woman at the well. And praise God for that. He goes uphill. He's tired. His disciples are teenagers and they're hungry. And they go to town to get food. Jesus is sitting at the well. And here comes this woman. And we talked about the four C's of evangelism last week where we have to realize that God is in control of every situation, every interaction in our lives. And he was in this situation. Not only that, but we talked about the second C, which is compassion. Jesus showed compassion to this woman. This woman who is an outcast of the outcast of the outcast. This woman who is, in Jesus' day, a woman. So even if, even if uh, I was married to Kelsey back in Jesus' day, if I saw her out and about, I wouldn't talk to her. That, that just was not normal to do. But th- this woman is not just a woman in Jesus' day. She's a Samaritan. We think of it in terms of dogs, and oftentimes the Jews did. They called the Samaritans dogs. This woman's a, a mutt, a half-breed. She has some Jewish blood in her, but she's not fully Jewish. And then you look at Jesus. Jesus' lineage is royal. It goes back to David. It goes back to Abraham. Jesus is, is a thoroughbred, and this woman's a mutt. But Jesus shows compassion to her, and he says, give me a drink. And the woman's astonished, right? And she asks this question, how, how can you, a Jewish man, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? She's even resistant She's giving him the spiritual Heisman, keeping him at a distance she doesn't want. She doesn't want to talk to Jesus. She doesn't want to have interaction. You see, she's not only an outcast because she's a woman and a Samaritan, but she's an outcast because she's had five husbands and she's living with a sixth man, so she has to go up a mountain to get water at high noon when it's incredibly hot because she gets ridiculed and shamed by everyone else in the town. So Jesus says to her, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you living water. Well, she thinks that Jesus is talking about physical water and so she starts talking to him about, are you greater than our grandfather Jacob who he lived in this area and he never found living water, fresh water, spring water, river water. He never found that. And Jesus is like, I'm not talking about that, right? He's talking about the eternal hope. He's talking about himself well, the woman's not getting in, and he finally says, well, why don't you bring your husband here? Because you really want this water. You, in fact, verse 15 says that um, she is so ashamed. She would love to not ever have to go to a well again and never have to face the people again. She wants that living water, and Jesus says, okay, go and get your husband. 
And that's the, the third C is confrontation. When we share the gospel with people, we have to point out the fact that there is a void in their heart that they're trying to fill with anything in this world that they can grab a hold of, and it's not Jesus. And Jesus is the only person, the only thing that can fulfill that void in their heart. And so we have to confront people about the sin in their life. And Jesus does it with the woman because she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, well, what you say is true. You've had five, and you're living with the sixth man who's not your husband. And she says one of the funniest things in Scripture, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. <laughs> and, then, and then she starts talking about religious things, and she gives her normal Samaritan speech that, well, you Jews say that you worship in Jerusalem, but we say that we worship on this mountain. What do you say, huh, huh? And Jesus corrects her and says salvation is from the Jews, but he gives her the fourth C, which is Christ himself. He clearly tells the woman in verse 26, when she doesn't understand everything, she says, well, when the Messiah gets here, he'll explain everything to us. When uh, the Messiah who's called Christ, when he gets here, he'll explain everything. And Jesus clearly tells this woman, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. That's where we left off last week. Kind of a huge cliffhanger, right? What is this woman going to do when she meets Jesus? Well, we're going to cover that in verses 27 to 42. We've already read it. But in verses 27 to 42, we have um, Jesus as the main character and three characters or character groups that interact with Jesus. So we have the woman in her interaction with Jesus. We have the disciples in their interactions with Jesus. And then uh, finally, we have the Samaritans in their interactions with Jesus. And we're going to take a look at this text and see how each group interacts with Jesus and how Christ interacts with them by changing their lives and giving them a purpose. So let's look first at the woman Verse 26, Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. And verse 27 points out that right at that moment, the disciples come up the road. They're right there. We see God sovereignly orchestrating this. If they had come earlier, Jesus may not have been able to share that he is the Messiah. The woman might have been afraid and, and gone off. The timing is perfect. It's impeccable. God is in control of all of this. And his disciples get to hear him say it himself, I am the Messiah. But they miss the point. The woman doesn't. The woman doesn't miss the point. Her life is radically changed, but these disciples, uh, the text tells us, they see Jesus talking to a woman and they're like, huh? And it's interesting because John writes this 60 years after it happened. John wrote his gospel in the 90s A.D., okay? Not the 1990s, but the 90s A.D., the, the first 90s. And, and this is about 60 years later. And, and I don't think, um, I was listening to a pastor this week, and he was talking about, I don't think John is just congratulating the disciples. Hey, there's one time we didn't put our foot in our mouths by saying something stupid, right? Like, he's not doing that. He's showing how unusual it is that Jesus would be talking to this woman. But they don't understand what's going on. 
they don't see the compassion of Jesus. They just think, that's weird. Their minds are on earthly things. More on the disciples later. So, uh, what happens to the woman? She hears that Jesus is the Messiah. What does she do? I love verse 28. You've got to look at verse 28. It is amazing. And it's not something that we're going to stick on like a mug or something, like a coffee mug. But it is one of the best verses in Scripture because it illustrates when you meet Jesus, what happens. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, this is amazing. Okay, the woman at noon needs water. She walks in the heat of the day to go get water. She has a conversation with Jesus about water. Jesus is talking about living water, spiritual water, but what does this woman want? She wants physical water. Her mind is preoccupied with water. Now, the only way to get water was by that jar. There's a giant well, and you had to go 100 feet deep to get the water out of it. You, you needed that jar that, that was really important to get the water. And she's been having this conversation about water, and she's been thinking about water, and, and water's on her mind, and all of a sudden, she hears Jesus confess that he is the Messiah. And the trajectory of life, she's there. This goes much further than, than John just saying, I'm an eyewitness, and I know that she left her water jar there. Yes, John is an eyewitness, and he knew that she left the water jar there, but the Holy Spirit inspired, her, or inspired John to write this down because it points to something later on in the verse that she went away. Now, where does she go? She goes back into the town, back into the town with the people that she tries to avoid, and she talks to them. We know because of verse 15, she doesn't want to talk to these people. She'd rather never see them. But she goes up to them. Her life is changed. You see, she went up to this well, much like she had gone after men in her life. She had sought man after man after man after man after man, and she was left unsatisfied. The void in her heart was still there. Just like when she had to go get water, each and every day. She always had to return to that well. But now she got it. The water that Jesus offered her was not physical water, but it was a water where she would never have to thirst again, a water that Jesus said, woman, you cannot find satisfaction in men. You cannot find satisfaction and to fill that void apart from me. I love what one study Bible says. It says physical desires require repeated satisfaction and never fully satisfy us. But Christ becomes the internal source of vitality when we trust him. She goes back to that town because she's changed. She meets Jesus. She goes to the town with the people she doesn't want to see. And what does she say? Verse 29, come, see a man. Now, it's an invitation to hang out with her, by the way. The people she's trying to avoid. Come with me. 
Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Here's a woman. She went up to the well. She did not know the Messiah. Her religion was off. She was an outcast of the outcast of the outcast. She had no hope, and she had a giant void in her heart. And now it has been filled. This is amazing. Jesus and the woman. Because her life is radically transformed, so much so that she would go back into the town where she experiences the shame and the guilt and the loneliness, trying to avoid those people. And she invites them to come with her. The people who have not loved her, she now is able to love. And you can almost hear a collective groan when she starts off by saying, come, see a man. And everyone just goes, oh, here we go again. But you'll notice the testimony, why they believed, is not that she said, here's another man, but she says, look at verse 39. Why did they believe? He told me all that I ever did. Now this town, they know all that she ever did. This town knows that her morals are not good. She's living with a man that's not even her husband. Uh, this town knows that she's had five previous husbands. This town knows that she's a moral failure. They know that shame and that guilt and that loneliness, that sin that weighs so heavy on her, it's deserved. But here's the woman. Guiltless, shameless, not lonely. She's changed. You see, Satan wants us to think about how we're condemned in our life. How we are a complete moral failure. You all know it. If you are in Jesus, you know that you failed Jesus. You know that you sin. You know the deep, dark, secret sins that you have. You know the pride that bubbles up in your heart. You know the lust of the flesh. You know the gossip that you do incessantly. And he condemns us. He says, you're not worthy. He says, you're a failure. He fills us with guilt and shame, and he condemns us. But when we meet Jesus, friends, there is therefore, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus shows us the love of God, the love of God that is the only thing that can fill that void in our heart. And this woman is changed. She readily admits that what she's done is bad. But Jesus told her all that she's ever done. And he's taken the guilt away. How can Jesus change you? I was talking to a woman this week who earlier in her life, she was pregnant and on her own. And there was a lot of people who ridiculed her, called her names, said that she wouldn't amount to anything and her child would never amount to anything, let alone ever be a Christian. It was a very unchristlike attitude. A little bit later, after that woman had that baby, 
about 10 years or so. They both trusted Christ. But you see, uh, back then, because of all the terrible things that were said to her, she was harboring bitterness in her heart. She said, I will never forgive those people. And even though decades have passed since that time, the woman told me this week she saw one of the worst offenders. And because Jesus has so radically transformed her life, she went up to that other woman, gave her side hug, side pat, and genuinely cared about how she was doing and had a conversation. You see, friends, Jesus can radically transform you. What shame or guilt or sin do you have in your life that if you met with Jesus today, he could take away? And replace it with himself. So, as the woman tells the town, come with me. Jesus is sitting there full, full heart. You can just see the half smile of Jesus as he's leaning against the well. He watches the woman go down. She goes across the field. She goes into the town, and Jesus knows that she's been radically transformed, and his heart is full. And the, and the disciples, the teenage disciples over here, uh, they had their food. They had their sandwiches. Jesus, eat a sandwich. Come on. Jesus says no, and they keep urging him. And then finally they go, did you slip Jesus a Snickers bar? Like, what's going on here? Jesus and the disciples in verse 31 through 38 shows us that you can be living with Jesus and actually really miss the purpose of Jesus. These disciples had walked with him. They knew him. They loved him. But they did not get the mission of Jesus We saw that earlier. We saw that in verse 27. Jesus is talking to the woman, and they're thinking, why are you doing that? Ew, get away. And they eat their their food, and they beg Jesus to eat, and he says no, and they're not understanding. Just like the woman wasn't understanding that Jesus was talking about spiritual water, they think that Jesus is talking about physical food not spiritual food. But Jesus is talking about a spiritual food, and that spiritual food is this, doing the mission of his Father. Jesus says to them in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The disciples still have no idea what's going on. And Jesus continues, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. What is Jesus talking about? Well, physically speaking, um, we, we know where he's at. We know where Jacob's well is. It's a good established fact. And uh, right over here is a nice field. 
in an agricultural society, which we kind of get being Hoosiers, um, we understand there's fields, right? And there's a certain time when you harvest. Now, the, their harvesting was, was different than ours. But what Jesus is trying to get across to these men, these men that he loves, these men that he's discipling, is this, that um, the time is now. The kingdom of God is now. The time to share the gospel, to live on mission, is now. You don't have to wait. The time has come. You see, um, back in Amos 9.13, the prophet said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. Amos is saying that uh, one day there's going to be someone who's, who's planting the seeds, but the people who are, who are collecting what comes from that, they're going to catch up. The harvest was ready. Jesus was here. The Messiah had come, and he was changing lives. And he says, this is your job as well, disciples. I'm doing the mission that the Father has given me, but I'm training you to partake in that mission. I'm training you to sow seeds of the gospel. I'm training you to reap the harvest of the gospel. Get ready. I was laying the foundation with this woman here at the well. She goes back to the town. She shares the testimony. The next couple days, disciples, we're going to reap a harvest. I'm really grateful for this text because it means, as I've shouted for two years, living on mission for Jesus, living on mission for Jesus, and we print the t-shirt, I saw Brandon Bauer with a t-shirt on yesterday. I was like, nice shirt. Living on mission for Jesus. We can be successful. Jesus says the harvest is right there. Yes, he's just telling his disciples 2,000 years ago that there's a harvest. And, and you can see him looking out to the field. And the Samaritans, they would wear white. And so, yes, they're coming across the field. And, and it kind of looks like the, the field is ready to be harvested. But Jesus isn't talking about the physical. He's talking about the spiritual. The spiritual harvest is ready. Jesus says that, that there will be people who are saved, but we have different parts in this. Jesus is telling them that there's some people who are going to sow seeds, and there are other people who are going to reap the harvest. So next time you're on an airplane, and you go, I do not want to talk to that person next to me. Remember, God is in control of every interaction and every situation. He's placed you right there to live on mission for him. And you go, I can't do that. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Because the success in this is obedience. Not everybody is going to just trust Jesus right away. The pressure's off. We're just called to be faithful workers. You know, it would be very foolish for the farmers in the spring in Indiana when they till up the ground and they plant the seed, it would be very foolish for them to get out of the tractor or the harvester or the combine. I don't know. I'm, I, my grandfathers were farmers and I'm not, okay? But whatever you drive when you plant the seeds, they get out and they go, Where, where's the corn? Where's the beans? That would be stupid, right? Like, uh, you had just planted the seed, right? Sometimes, 
When we share the gospel with the person on the airplane or our neighbor next door, we're just the person who plants the seed. Sometimes we're the, we're the person who waters the seed, but no fruit comes from it. But you can be successful if you are being obedient. That's an achievable goal, right? Obedience. God is the one who brings that harvest. Will Metzger, in his book, Tell the Truth, says this, understanding that God, not us, is the evangelizer, the one who brings results, is wonderfully liberating. This makes witnessing an adventure in which we merely ride along with God as he moves out. We don't force open any doors, just walk through the ones he opens. Jesus says the harvest is ready. All of you have interactions with people on a daily basis. Those people need Jesus. And Jesus has put you in their lives to be obedient. Someone may come to know Christ. Someone may say, hmm, my grandma shared that with me years ago. That really makes me think. And then maybe the next person who comes along and shares that, they go, yeah, someone else said something. You never know. But we're called to be obedient. And God opens doors for opportunities. And we're just called to be obedient as we walk through them. I remember um, hearing about the missionary Adoniram Judson. He was a missionary over in Burma. His life is fascinating. I've mentioned him before. He lost a couple of wives and children in serving Jesus. And after 12 years of being a missionary in Burma, 12 years, there were 18 converts to Christ. Now, most of us would say, I've labored. I've lost my wife, my children. There's 18 people who trusted Jesus. Now, I don't know how many Christians are in uh, Myanmar, Burma, today, um, but I do know this, okay? Um, there are a lot. In fact, uh, the, the Baptist of Myanmar, uh, there's 1.6 million of them today. But there was not a gospel witness before Adoniram Judson got there. He planted seeds and God brought the harvest later on. You never know if you share the gospel with a coworker or a neighbor or a family uh, member or a friend, and you go, there's no way this person is ever going to know Christ. You don't know that. Jesus is giving a prime example to his disciples of this woman. Why are you talking to this woman, this Samaritan woman, this woman that's getting water at noon? There's something wrong with this woman. And Jesus says, watch me fill the void in her heart and give her a purpose, a mission to tell others about me. This woman goes back to the town. This woman shares the gospel. You never know who that Samaritan woman is going to be in your life. You never know what seeds you're planting as you live faithfully for Jesus, as you walk obediently with him into the doors that he opens. Sometimes it's a full-fledged gospel conversation, and sometimes it's just merely telling someone Jesus loves you or sharing a testimony. I mean, if we look at this woman's testimony, 
it's not that great. Come see a man. He told me all I ever did. Could this be the Christ? I've heard better testimonies. But the old adage holds true. Little is much when God is in it. So Jesus calls his disciples, and if you're a disciple of Jesus, he calls you as well to join in the harvest, to join in this mission. He gives you a life purpose. Jesus and the Samaritans. Uh, This is quick. We hear the rest of the story. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The legacy of this Samaritan town that was brought to Christ because of the woman's testimony is that they say for the rest of eternity, Jesus is the Savior of the world. And in our little units here in John, we just talked about John chapter 3 where Jesus says that you must believe in him to Nicodemus. You must be born again. Nicodemus is from high society. He's part of the Sanhedrin. He's a Jewish religious leader. That gospel that Jesus shares with him, you must be born again, is good enough all the way down to the Samaritans. Jesus is the Savior of the world. There's nothing quite like being around new converts. I remember in 2011, I went on the Orlando Project through campus outreach. And many of the the students that I was on this trip with down in Orlando, we were being trained in evangelism and how to study scripture and and different things like that. Uh, Many of the students had recently trusted Christ. And some of the students actually on that trip trusted Christ. You see, they got hooked with getting to work at Universal Studios. And at Universal Studios, they had just opened Harry Potter World. And so some of the students were like, I want to work there. And they didn't know about Jesus. But this whole trip was centered on evangelism and learning more about Jesus. And they got saved. And one of my friends in this church got saved on that trip. And I'll tell you this. It was amazing to sit there as we're doing word studies in scripture, as we're learning about evangelism, to see these new converts hungry to proclaim Christ. Um, I had a, a room leader. The guy had only been saved like a year. He was so passionate about Jesus. His name's Deontay. And I went down on the Orlando Project because I was frightened to share my faith. I'd grown up in the church. I went to a Christian school. I was going to a Christian college. But sharing the gospel really frightened me. I knew more about scripture than Deontay did, but Deontay was fearless and so in love with Jesus. The very first night we go out for our evangelism training, Deontay says, hey, you come with me. All right, let's do this. So we're in Orlando where people from all over the world come to go to Universal Studios or Disney or whatever else. And, and we're on this, this like boardwalk, okay? And Deontay looks around and I go, hey, how about we share the gospel with that person? And it's like a nice like little family. He's like, no, 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 other people will get that. He finds a guy that could have grabbed both of us and just killed us like that, okay? <laughs> he goes, let's go talk to that guy. And I'm like, all right, Jesus, let's go. 
And he goes, you don't even have to talk if you don't want to. I'm, but I'm talking to this dude. So we go up to this guy. And he's even taller than what he looked like, like 40 feet away. And I look up at the guy. And Deontay just straight up asks him, hey, dude, what do you believe about Jesus? Like, you don't do that. Deontay and others on that trip encourage my heart to love Jesus and to love people, to share the gospel. There's nothing quite like new converts. I mean, the disciples haven't just flat out said it yet. Jesus is the savior of the world, but these new converts, these Samaritans, they did. How can we get some more Samaritans in our church? How can we get some more people who are so passionate about Jesus? They, they know nothing about the Bible, but they, they know Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, and they want to follow him. Well, I think through ordinary means of grace that God is in control of anyone who comes to know him. And this woman shared a testimony because she had a void filled in her life. Do you have that void feel, filled in your life? Are you walking around like a sad sack of potatoes because you just are empty inside? Do you know Jesus? I'm not saying that Christians always have to be happy. I mean, one of the greatest uh, pastors, one of the greatest Christians uh, that have ever written things, Charles Spurgeon, that guy was depressed all the time. I'm not saying that Christians always have to be happy and chippy and eh, but do you have the void filled in your heart that even in the midst of tragedy you can... You can kiss the waves that crash you against the rock because you know that it makes you love Jesus more. Do you have that in your life? Some of you do. But in a room this size, I don't know how many people are here this morning, but some of you don't. Jesus shows us in, in John chapter four that he is willing to take the void, the guilt, the shame, the loneliness, the sin that's in your heart. He's willing to take that and replace it with himself. And he's willing to give you a purpose, a mission to live for him. What's your main purpose in this life? Do you concentrate like the disciples did on the physical? Yeah, I mean, they're concentrating on food. But are you concentrating on things that, in light of eternity, actually don't matter that much? Are you more concerned about your job or your 401k? Are you more concerned about what your neighbors might think of you? Are you more concerned with Christ? If you're in Jesus, you have a testimony just like that woman. And I have a couple tips for how you can share your testimony with others. And maybe by just being obedient with the people in your life, the people that know you, maybe you can testify how Christ has saved you. Here's some tips on sharing your testimony. One, make it personal. You're not talking about everybody and their brother. You're, you're just talking about who Jesus is to you. And if he's your savior, that should be pretty easy. If you struggle with step one about who Christ is to you, then, then come and talk with me. Genuinely, I, I would love to talk with you. I, I know the other pastors in our church would love to talk with you Secondly, make it short. You don't have to preach. I mean, some of you wish that this sermon was already shorter, right? But 
we don't have to preach. Three, four minutes sharing what Christ has done for you. Keep it Christ-focused. This woman's testimony is Christ-focused. He told me all that I ever have done. Could this be the Christ? Use the word of God. You don't have to know all of scripture, but there's a few verses that if you can tie to your testimony can work powerfully to cut to the heart of the listener. And use your testimony as a bridge to the gospel. You know, um, people may not care about Jesus, but they might care about you. They might say, oh, I really like you. You've been a really good friend to me for years. And you go, can I just share something with you? Or maybe a neighbor. You, you've been a good neighbor. Hey, can I, can I just share something with you? A little bit of my story. Friends, I pray that we would be a faithful and obedient church. We can't control who comes to know Christ. But we can be obedient, and that's what we're called to be. You see, if Jesus has filled that void in your heart, he has given you the purpose to live on mission for him.